This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Hello, Kyle. I'm I'm ready to take a nap. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) This is good. Did, Did you have a big Friday lunch too? Not so huge, but I had I had a weird sleep, and then I in the middle of the night I woke up. I was scrambling to find sleep meditation podcasts, and it was very hard and kind of frustrating because I, I would I would give it maybe like five eight minutes and be like this is not working, and then it's like complete opposite <laughs> of what you should do. <laughs> so that was a little frustrating, and I you know it was someone told me about a really good one, but it was like 4.30 in the morning, so I couldn't ask them, you know? So I was kind of <laughs> at the mercy of my search bar in yeah. podcast land, so. That's interesting. I never thought to look at podcasts for meditation. Me neither. I am a on and off again user of Headspace. Yes. I like the idea of using that all the time, but it doesn't always fit into my daily routine, which is probably unfortunate. Yeah, I... I've been meaning to use Headspace for months and there's something, there's some weird invisible barrier between me and using it. And I don't know what, I can't put my finger on it, but it's kind of like before, like before you go to the gym for the first time or something, it's like, I'll just wait. I mean, it's not a, it's nothing taxing. It's not like I have to leave my apartment, but there's just some weird invisible thing that I can't get past. (laughs) (laughs) For me, the biggest barrier for that was always that it costs more than like a music subscription. And it always, for some whatever reason, like the value that I get out of a music subscription and the value I get out of someone talking to me is supposed to be the same, where in in Mm. reality, I guess they're totally different things. That's so interesting. I didn't realize you have, to, you have to pay for Headspace too. I didn't. That's even bigger. That's there's a barrier. <laughs> Great, <laughs> found barrier number two. <laughs> they do have like their intro course or whatever it is. It's, it's free. Oh, cool. All right. Should look into that. So, how's your uh, Friday going? It's going pretty good. Been trying to recruit designers. We have. If anyone's listening that's in New York or Boston or London or San Francisco (laughs) or Raleigh (laughs) and you looking for a great place to work, we're hiring. Yes, it is a great place to work. So that's that's taken up a lot of my day. So we found that finding people, going out and actively looking for people is a much higher success rate for us, both in terms of hiring a diverse group of people and in terms of finding people who are a really good fit. So it accomplishes two birds with one stone, I guess, rather than waiting for people to apply. And so spending Mm. that that time to actively recruit is important. And how are you actively recruiting? Being okay with being a creep online and just like... (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, that's what it is. You know, going through Dribble, LinkedIn, Behance, GitHub, trying to filter people by their location and just looking at what they have on each one of those. And if their skill set and their purpose and values match that of ThoughtBots. And then stocking them some more, like visiting their personal site, their Twitter account, 
following them on Twitter. Stalking them on Twitter, stalking <laughs> them on Facebook. <laughs> I don't have Facebook, so I can't do that, <laughs> which is probably good. But yeah, so stalking them on every network and, and mm. writing an honest email to them about like why I think they would be a good fit with ThoughtBot and what made them stand out apart from everyone else. And I think I get a pretty good response rate back, you know, when you tell someone nice things about their work and, and then proceed to ask them if they want to talk about ThoughtBot is it's usually a good response because I think, you know, we have a combination of a good design reputation and, you know, a very healthy, you know, working environment. And so those two things often at least lead to a conversation. Mm-hmm. What is the most top quality you look for? And does it vary based on the office? Yes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a good question. It depends on the office. It depends on the director there and, and their opinions. And I think it also depends on on the other designers. I'm going a lot off of the director because I have more one-on-one time with them. And I'm hoping that they're summing up the feelings of the entire office and what kind of designer, if it's like someone who you know has a lot of product experience or someone that has a lot of research experience or someone that mm-hmm. is really solid in you know doing the front end activities that a designer does or someone that's really heavy in visual design and honestly like where they are in their career like i do think actively saying hey we want someone a lot more senior or hey like we could definitely use some like there there's a lot of energy that is brought in by someone who isn't as senior might not have the experience but makes everyone around them more excited about doing work. Yeah, it's very hard to find people. We had a client here that we helped them hire a designer and a developer, and it took them like five months, five to six months. It was a really long process. (laughs) So we've been looking for a design director for London for over a year. Mm -hmm. All of that, like we're not always being super proactive about it, but it definitely definitely takes a while to find someone really good especially like we i think have abnormally high standards mm-hmm. at thoughtbot for who we want to work with and i i think that's definitely a good thing and and i don't ever want to get to a place where we're kind of like caving on those standards just because we have a position to fill yeah which is why like i'm totally okay with having that director role be open for that long is because i don't want to have us cave on on what we're looking for Hmm. Yeah, you know, I was I always think about why it's so hard to find someone because it's not only a skill set, it's also culture fit too. Like one time in a previous company, we had interviewed someone and he was like off the charts, definitely there like skill set wise, but we it was just a really quick no because he just didn't jive with the rest of the team. So that was such a huge factor, you know? Yeah, it definitely is. I don't like the... I don't know why. Maybe it's just like the weird designer developer part of me that doesn't like the the term culture fit. Sure. I, I try to approach it from purpose and value fit just because some of the implications around culture can, yeah, can lead true. to like going back to like me looking for diverse opinions and diverse thoughts. Like I don't want to ever get to a point where we're not being challenged in, in the work that we do, but I want to be challenged in a high level and not on an interpersonal level. So kind of going back to what you said, it's just, we're on the same page. It's just <laughs> language. <laughs> just semantics. Thing, semantics. For me, it's also nice because so you have that slash purpose page and there's like an actual document that I can go back to and be like, 
okay, where did this person not fit within these the purpose that we have at ThoughtBot? Instead of it being just like this aloof thing that I'm like, oh, they didn't match our culture. It's more of a, okay, I can go back to, we value these things at ThoughtBot and they clearly are opposed to at least two of these. And so like, we're not going to compromise on those values that we have in that page. Mm -hmm. And so hiring someone that, that doesn't align with those isn't going to work. And I think that's where what people typically say is culture fit. And that's why I like to try and change the language. Around I like the it. Fit. Yeah. And you're in it right now. Like you're in the you're you are actively recruiting. So it's important for you to get your the language, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that you've kind of came to some of those realizations. Those are things I haven't really thought too much about since I haven't been actively in the trenches on the the job pages and and the Twitters and whatnot. So it's interesting. A family friend, she's just starting her last year of design school. And we we chatted just because she kind of wanted some advice on, you know, when she's starting out, what she should do and what it's like to be, you know, a designer. And that was such a fun conversation to have because I went back to the very beginning when I learned on the job pretty much. And I was just telling her, like, find a company that's open, maybe a smaller company and just... You know, at that point, if you just tell them, I really want to learn, I have these skill sets, I have, you know, as you're saying, like these values, it's a good possibility that they'll allow you to come on and with, with the, like knowing that you're going to be learning, you know, it's interesting. My wife actually asked me that she, she was asking for someone else earlier today about, you know, starting out in web development. I was like, honestly, just start building stuff and start meeting yes. people. So like, start putting writing things in GitHub and, and start going out to meetups. And like, that's all you really need to do. Mm-hmm. And that was honestly her, her question back is like, is that it? And I was like, honestly, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is like, I think the thing that makes that really hard to do is there's a lot of, a lot of failure in learning how to design and learning how to code just in terms of like what you butt heads with. And I think it ter- takes certain type of people to like get over that and, and do it because they enjoy that kind of failure and accomplishment that you get after learning from that and a- a- able to like see that failure again and, and essentially learn from the last time they did it. And also the failure for, for like reaching out to people and asking for that chance because it probably will take a while for that person to get a chance for them to prove themselves but like just asking over and over again, I guess it's the thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, it's having the mental bandwidth too to be able to learn and to be able to adapt. And like when I was starting out, I was just at a college and it was like the financial crisis, like 20, you know, 2008. So I had nothing to do but learn, <laughs> you know, I had to. And you know, managed to get a, a job at an interactive agency. I've always loved computers and I was account, an account manager to start, you know, and then just worked my way into front end development from there out of interest. So I think following your interest is huge and not ignoring those. You know, if you have a passion for, you know, iOS, like native iPhone apps, like start with that, go from there, you know, but for sure, start building. You know, I got a HTML and CSS for dummies book. 
awesome. And I started building websites. <laughs> my first project when I switched over to front end development was like for a gym. And I made the site. And after, like, I would do a hover state, like swap out an image because this was back when you used sprites. And I would swap out an image and it'd be like, oh, my God, so that's how you do it. You know, <laughs> I would be so into it. And then I, like a year later, I was sitting next to my friend who was tasked with updating that website like a year later. <laughs> and then he's sitting next to me and he's just looking at me and shaking his head like, what did you do? <laughs> this is horrific. I'm like, I know it's terrible. It's like my first website. He's like, how many states? You know, it was just so funny. It's so it's so crazy, though, how quickly you learn. And I, I think, too, about when I debug, just a little, like, anecdote about debugging in IE. I just did it the other day. And I used to have to debug it in, like, IE 6, which is awful. <laughs> and now it's so weird, the knowledge you pick up after so many years you just know what to turn off an inspector and inspect element, you know, and you're like, oh, this is totally a this problem or that problem. <laughs> that took so long. <laughs> so much information. <laughs> I think, you know, years ago, Rada and another designer here, Phil, used to say that I was the IE guru just because like oh, no. I have all this useless IE6 knowledge of like how to fix certain design bugs in IE and they'd always come to me and be like, Hey, I have this question. I always know the answer. And I was just like, now it's totally useless knowledge that I oh hope my God. is like gone. <laughs> I knew all the star hacks, you know, in uh-huh. CSS and all the ones that were for six, seven and eight. Oh, geez. The other day we're, I was debugging something in IE 11 or something. I'm like, is there a star hack for this? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. It turned out fine. Flexbox. Which is incredible, by the way. But yeah, it's weird. IE. So good old yeah. IE. Yeah. The, I think my favorite part about like IE 11, I, there's a little smiley face in the top right corner of the browser. And you click on the smiley face and it says, like, send a thumbs up or a thumbs down or something. <laughs> like, where is this going? <laughs> it's amazing. I wonder if anyone on that team actually reads through those. I would love to talk to the IE team. I just, I don't know. I have so many thoughts. I mean, it's great, but I don't know. I'd love to talk to them about that exact thing because they get a lot of, you know, (laughs) historical uh, hate. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to say it nicely. It's historical hate. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, it's their own version. What is it now? 11 or 12 and chrome's on like version like 68 you know it just shows it's important to ship constantly ship software right right (laughs) that's why like ie6 is such like the bane or was i guess the bane of everyone's existence was because they never really updated like it was i forget how long between ie6 and ie7 and it was like multiple years yeah the the gap was just tremendous and yeah that's where people had all those issues. Like at that, when IE6 was released, it was actually a really progressive browser, which is why it won. And then it thought it won the browser wars and like just stopped making updates, which is well, great. it won. Yeah, <laughs> done. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, so much of my time was spent debugging that, and also, you know, it was I was in this job where it was about making Pixel perfect, you know, from mockups to to code. Which was really great 
practice for sure. <laughs> but it's interesting now because be, now fast forward now to being at ThoughtBot or even a couple companies before where I'm just not in that headspace anymore of pixel perfect. But sometimes you get a client who is, you know, and they're like, can you just send her that thing? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Ugh, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Especially with things like, I don't know, Flexbox is so, again, I just, I love it so much. It's so useful. And I love being able to just let it do its thing. But it's a nice departure. It is. I, I love that, you know, we've come so far because that was the attitude to have pixel perfect designs. And that, like, I fondly remember creating rounded corners for, for each one of my <laughs> designs <laughs> and, and having images to replicate what, what we now have. Or if you wanted a shadow, that was even... Oh, my God. I had like a one-by-one <laughs> one transparent ping yeah. or something. And then you had yes. to have a fix for IE if you wanted transparent <laughs> pings. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy that that is not... <laughs> I mean, now we're doing so so much. I mean... A, a lot you... of that, I think, has changed because of responsive design. Like, people's expectations of what a website is mm-hmm. has changed for the better. And even though back then it shouldn't have mattered, but, like, I remember designing websites that were fixed at, like, <laughs> 12,000 pixels. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that was the standard then right like it's it's kind yeah. of funny to look back and think about like oh i'm designing uh, on this set grid if your browser is wider okay if your browser is smaller yeah. sorry <laughs> you're gonna have some yeah. horizontal scrolling that's so true i know i was just telling i was thinking about how once you're in this field you have to keep you got to keep up with technology right like obviously i mean especially if you're the if you are the one doing the designing at least. I, I suppose if you kind of hover into like a managerial role, you still have to know. But now you're getting more into like the dynamics of the team and you still should, again, should know what you're talking about. But when you're like, when you're down in the in the trenches, you know, I mean, responsive design was so amazing in that now you're like, I don't know how many screens and like some of the, I'm not, I'm not sure how many screens are, are going to be in the next year. So let's just make this look good everywhere. <laughs> you know? It's great. It's amazing. That kind of goes back to the conversation about like what should people learn. I think one of the best things that people can learn is is figure out how they personally learn. Yeah. I think you you, you sort of spoke to this, but like I I think I learn in a similar way, which is like the best way for me to learn something new is just say, okay, I can do that and just (laughs) dig in and, and do a lot of searching and a lot of asking of questions and kind of figure out that way. And then essentially like looking for feedback once I have done something, you know, I'm not the type of person that like, I know a lot of people love treehouse like education system, but like if I go into the, that and I, I've done it in the past to like start to learn JavaScript or, or rails and it's something that like I'll do. And as soon as I'm done with it, I just forget it because it's oh, not, yeah. I don't know why it's just, just like not concrete knowledge for me until I yeah. like, struggled through it. <laughs> Oh my God, that's what I'm dealing with right now with like Optimizely. We're doing, <laughs> on my, my current project, we're setting up A-B testing for a homepage. So they have a homepage, they've had it for a year, and now let's test out a different one. So I, it's been, what a week. Because it started, you know, they had an account from 2015 with Optimizely Classic. 
So I dug in to optimize the classic, figured it was good, just kind of got my bearings there. And then there's a whole other flip side to not only learning the tool, but learning what metrics you want to record, how you track your events, where those are gonna go. You go into Google Analytics and set up custom reports, which means you keep Googling how to set up the custom report you want because there are so, Google Analytics is so insanely powerful, but it's so hard to use, you know, unless you really truly know what you're looking for. And I know, I know what I'm looking for, but I don't know what it is in Google Analytics speak, you know? (laughs) So then it's Googling like the weirdest phrases of, you know, so it's been a really interesting week and I feel this, I'm the same way. I I can't do a tutorial. I need to get my hands dirty and learn. So we're going to launch this experiment next week and get some data and then (laughs) see, see what happens. You know, it's hard though to work. It's hard to for an answer to a client to kind of be, well, we're going to kind of see how it, see what happens, you know, because they report back to their, their team and the team's like, what, what, where's the numbers? Like, what's the percentages? I don't understand. Like, what do you mean? We'll see what happens, you know, but it's like, it's an experiment. We'll, we'll see how it goes (laughs) (laughs) and we'll go from there. Yeah. Have you ever had a, a client where you were working with one person and they had to report back to a team? And there's always some kind of disconnect or I don't know if I have, but I know we've we've done that before in the past. And we're kind of like depending on that person who is our direct contact to be selling the project the right way. So it's always like it's a little scary when we do that kind of thing. But yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever like I've always maybe lucked out or or been in a nice situation where I've been talking directly to the head honcho, I guess, the person making the overarching decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've learned too. It's important to educate the person on your team from the client, like how to speak to the rest of their team about, you know, agile, about software development. You know, in this particular case, the client is a physical product, so they they're approaching the software side as if you were you would approach a physical product. So you know. For the physical product side, they're out till 2025, you know, (laughs) and that's kind of the mindset they're in. It's just always looking forward, Mm -hmm. looking in the future, looking in the future. So with when you're (laughs) applying it to a website, you know, software in general, it's not necessarily we're like, no, we're going to run this experiment on Monday. And then in two weeks from then, well, we can make a call about this, about this thing and then kind of pivot from there where we need to. I feel like I take for granted Sometimes like all of that information that I know about agile and how it's important to pivot from one thing to another. And there's sometimes I forget that not everyone understands or like is familiar with that. You know, sometimes you're in a ro- you're in a world of make the blueprint, get it right, and then build the thing. Yeah. I wonder yeah. like how much of that has changed in the physical process realm though too. Like I know like a lot of Toyota's methodologies for building their cars and products and is similar to the agile lean approach. Ooh. And I wonder also too, like how much of it is just like shorter cycles. So like we're used to getting feedback really quickly and they're, they're probably not used to that quick feedback turnaround. Yep. That's very true. And we need that quick feedback. 
And it also depends on how the team is communicating. Like, what are they using? Are they using email? Are they using Slack? Is it all in person? There's a lot of different variables. But I, I always found that the best relationships we have with clients come with this sense of mutual trust. You know, like we trust them to be the expert in their field. And then they trust us. And then it's the learning about both together. That's always been, and you, so you come into it of more of a collaborative approach rather than com combative. Yeah, you know? I, I wholly agree with that. Like, I think the two hardest things for product teams to do is, is, is or the two most important things are trust each other and communicate really well. And writing software and designing things is relatively easy compared to trusting each other and communication. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like those soft skills are so much more important and being able to either build trust, repair trust, to be able to communicate and know the right level of communication is so important for any kind of product that you're building. And any kind, like we're working in teams, like there, there's very few software companies out there that, or people out there that can build a product from problem all the way to implementate like the full scale. Like there, there, I know there are some people out there that can totally do that, but they're like <laughs> probably one in a billion or whatever it is. Like, so like in general, we're all working in teams and whether it's a two person or five person or like a 20 person team to build a product or a hundred person team, like the more you scale that up, the more important communication and trust are. Definitely. And you, you can't just walk into a room and do your job. Like, that'd be great if you can just put your headphones on. There are days you, you if it's set up the right way, then you, you can, you know, on Wednesday, you're going to walk in and like, I have a job to do today. But behind the scenes, there's 99% of the time you are working on the dynamic and making sure that people know that you have the clients know and your teammates too that you have their best interests as well as you know and it's for the team it's for the product success it's so interesting like learning that it's you know yes have the skill for definitely have the skill to know how to design but you have to also have to know how to find a way to break some barriers and to be able to actually design right you know so many dynamics at play in, in general, that's one of the reasons that I've loved working at ThoughtBot is, and I wrote a blog post a few years ago about this, which is like the roles that we have are very blurred. Like our designers mm -hmm. write HTML and CSS. And because of that, we're in the code base and we're actively contributing to the code base. And I think our developers also contribute to the product solving business needs and business goals and our just as much involved in the user experience as designers. And so having the the shared responsibility of all of that and, and having a, a, a better understanding of each other's jobs gives us more empathy and more empathy leads to trusting each other a lot more. And I think yeah. that's one of the reasons that, that our teams have been super successful is because we have that that kind of overlap in terms of responsibility and our skill set and understanding of, of what each person is doing and why they're doing it and what their role is and how they're going to give each other feedback, critique. And then when you have a whole other team, a new team come in from the outside and finding ways to establish that quickly. 
kind of by boiling that down to, okay, how can we take this? And then immediately when a new team, a new client team comes on board, they're like, they, they're, they're in it, they get it. Like, how do we show them empathy? You know, we have, you know, we usually start off with that kickoff, like a design sprint of a way to have them download, like give us everything that they, like their research, kind of what it's like to work where they are. I mean, it's even great to visit their office if they're local. I mean, like, and sometimes, you know, on, on projects, we, we do spend half the time at the clients or maybe you're half the time here, which I'm doing right now. And it's very, it's, you learn so much by just being in the client's office and just kind of sitting there and listening and just hearing how people communicate. Also just how, what the space is like in general, like physical space, you know, are there windows or they're not like, how far are you like in the tower? <laughs> oh, there, there aren't any windows. That's, that feels so sad. Well, they're no, they're 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 pretty far from where the desks are, so and it's also, yeah, and it's also also too if your client works at a co working space, you know what's that like as well because you're also hearing conversations about from other companies. It's just it's great. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> so many different teams and ways of working. I do find that like those kickoffs, the being in person being able to hear directly from the client what they're thinking, what their product is, or what, what they're thinking the problem is, and seeing how we process that problem and you know, validate and help them solve it and having them see how collaboratively we, we do that. My hope is that that in itself is very trust-building. Yeah. Just because we do so much within that first week or two weeks or, or whatever it, timeline that is to be able to like understand and start to deliver already on solutions for the problem. Yeah. And I, I always see so much joy in <laughs> the client's face when you repeat back to them their problem. And if you get it right, you're like, oh my God, yeah. You got all that from what we said? It's like, oh, thank God. Yes, I'm so happy that was correct. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, and it just speaks to them and how how well they know their problem and how well they can articulate it. Yep. You know, so. Cool. That thank was, you for joining fun. me. Right, we didn't sure. even do, I didn't even do an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, oh, I think you've been on the <laughs> podcast before, so. Yeah. Well, I guess. Now's a good time. I mean, like, do you want to introduce yourself and tell sure. people where they can follow you, find you, look at the things that you're doing? Sure. So my name is Jacqueline, and I'm a designer at ThoughtBot in the New York office, soon to be in the Boston office. And I do a lot of artwork. That's mostly what's online for me. So my website is my name, JacquelinePerone.com. And you can find my face on ThoughtBot com's website you can look like do a where's where's waldo type search and i'll be there <laughs> cool well yeah. thank you for listening you can find show notes at tentative.fm slash 42 you can tweet at us at tentative fm you can email us at hosts at tentative.fm and you should rate us in itunes give us any kind of feedback good or bad love to hear it yes <laughs> Keep on keeping on. Thank you. All right. Bye. bye.